Hello, and welcome to Planet Watch, big solutions to Earth-sized problems. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman. And I'm Joe Jordan. And today on the program, cougars, wetlands, and primates. How are we all getting along with nature, and how can we discover our intimate connection to all life on Earth before it's too late? We'll be talking with Dr. Michelle Merrill, an anthropologist who's interested in deep ecology, She's also interested in how our connection with our nearest relatives, the primates, can tell us a lot about how we're living our lives now. We have a podcast to which you can subscribe at planetwatchradio.com. And uh, you can also support this great show via Patreon, sort of a crowdfunding platform for media and artistic enterprises. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, forward slash planet underscore watch. Patreon slash planet underscore watch. Um, we'd like to thank MZ, Michael Zwirling, the owner of KSCO, for uh, sponsoring this program every week. Before we get into our interview, we'd like to have a couple of stories now from students from my Cabrillo College broadcast journalism course. So we're going to listen to those now, and then we'll have a, another story from Tommy Martin, and then we'll go straight to that interview with Michelle Merrill, who is in studio at this time. So let's have Griffin go ahead and run that story. Hi, I'm Rachel Ann Goodman, and every semester at Cabrillo College, I teach a course called Writing for the Broadcast Media. This semester, the assignment was to produce a four- to five-minute radio piece about a science topic that affects people here on the Central Coast, where the program is produced, or elsewhere in the country. With the recent news of a bicyclist having been killed by a mountain lion, many people are wondering, what are these creatures that live amongst us but that we almost never see? The Puma Project at the University of California, Santa Cruz, has been tagging, collaring, and tracking these elusive mountain creatures to help us learn more about their lives. Sean Davey has more about these elusive creatures, the Puma, or Mountain Lion. That was the sound of a mountain lion, also known as a puma. There are a lot of these animals in the Santa Cruz Mountains, but most people don't really understand these often elusive apex predators. When we think of pumas, most people probably imagine an animal they should be afraid of, an animal they wouldn't want to run into out in the wild. The reality, however, is that these animals are a lot more afraid of us than we are of them, and for good reason, too. To learn about the interactions between humans and pumas, I went to UC Santa Cruz to talk to, to Justin Scarucci, a graduate student working on the Puma Project. The Puma Project is a scientific study of the pumas native to the Santa Cruz area. The project's main goals are to get an idea of the size and health of the puma population and a sense of their role in the ecological community. In addition to that, they look at another aspect of the lives of these animals, uh, another major goal of the project is um, looking at uh, puma-human interactions um, and trying to understand how um, essentially sharing a landscape with humans affects a large carnivore population. They gather their data by fitting as many pumas as they can with GPS tracking collars. These collars are able to send location information as often as every five minutes to every four hours allowing the researchers to chart the whereabouts of a number of pumas and see where they're going and where their home ranges are. Justin describes the process of getting these collars onto the puma. We've got two main methods of puma capture, um, the, uh, one of which is um, cage traps, uh, so just like large um, cages, essentially, <laughs> that we will uh, you know, typically will do cage trapping when we have some existing evidence that a puma is in an area. The second method they use is hound hunting. We use the hounds to tree a puma um, and dart it, bring it down. Well, it usually brings itself down, uh, <laughs> dart it, and then uh, process it. And the processing is, um, so they're, um, they're unconscious, they're drugged. Um, and so they are uh, hopefully experiencing very little disturbance, uh, but we take a series of body measurements. Uh, we fit a collar and we take uh, some like blood and hair samples. Aside from field work like that, 
Justin's specific job is to study how fear of humans can cause ripple effects throughout the ecosystem. Our hypothesis is that fear of humans might act in much the same way as any predator scaring its prey. Through a series of experiments, they have discovered that pumas react very fearfully to the sounds of humans, going so far as to abandon their kills if they hear human voices near them. This, in turn, forces the pumas to kill even more deer than they normally would, putting increased stress on the ecosystem as a whole. Now, the data are not quite all in yet, but it looks like that might have further cascading effects, maybe even affecting everything down to the level of uh, the rodents that these like foxes and bobcats eat. Another focus of the project is studying the fragmentation of puma habitat. This idea of habitat fragmentation is um, kind of just representing the fact that you divide the usable habitat up into smaller and smaller chunks, and at some point, the chunks become too small to support viable puma populations. So. Fragmentation can cause a number of negative consequences, including a lack of genetic diversity, as well as pushing pumas into conflict with humans, which often ends with the puma dead. The young male pumas are hit the hardest. The males disperse from their moms, they have to find a territory within the mountains uh, or within, you know, yeah, within the Santa Cruz Mountains, um, which can often be hard to do because, in general, uh, most of the territories are already filled up with adult males. These males will often attempt to disperse into new territory across unnatural barriers like Highway 17, and many end up being killed by motorists. Justin shows an online map tracking the young male puma. So what we've got here is uh, the four-hour locations of a male puma. It's a young male, 83M. Um, so each of the dots is where approximately where he was um, at four-hour intervals, and then the lines just sort of connect those dots to give you a sense of the path. The path of this young male puma ended up crossing Highway 17 once, and then once more to return to his original habitat. Um, so he's a young male that was actually able to sort of carve out um, or appears to have been able to like carve out uh, a home range in the last probably six months or so. Although the population does seem to be doing well, many scientists worry that in the long term, a lack of genetic diversity could cause real problems for these pumas and the ecosystem as a whole. If you want to help the Puma Project with their conservation research, you can report any puma sightings to the Facebook page at www.facebook.com slash Santa Cruz Pumas and can learn more by visiting their website at santacruzpumas.org. In California, as in much of the United States, 90% of the wetlands have been turned into agriculture or drained for development and building. Ventana Magalanas has a story about Elkhorn Slough, one of the rare remaining wetlands in California, right on the central coast of California, and what's being done to prevent erosion from the tide and from global warming having sea level rise. Here's her story about a project that's going to restore that wetland. Tidal salt marshes provide healthy habitats for birds, plants, fish, and marine mammals such as sea otters. Elkhorn Slough is the largest salt marsh in California, south of San Francisco. Over the past 150 years, Elkhorn Slough lost over 50% of its marshlands, that's over a thousand acres, to human intervention and erosion. In January of this year, the Elkhorn Slough National Estuarine Research Reserve broke ground on the Elkhorn Slough Tidal Wetlands Project to work on restoring and conserving the estuary. I'm Ventana Magalanis with Planet Watch. Well, Elkhorn Slough is an estuary, and an estuary is a mixing of salt and fresh water. And Elkhorn Slough is actually more of a coastal embayment because we don't have a lot of fresh water coming into this area. That's Monique Fountain, the Tidal Wetlands Program Director. Today, we'll be hearing from her and Dave Feliz, the Reserve Manager, for insight on the Tidal Marsh Restoration Project going on at Elkhorn Slough. Um, we're restoring about 61 acres of Tidal Marsh. So historically in Elkhorn Slough, a lot of the Tidal Marsh was diked and drained, and it dried out. And when it dried, it dropped or subsided. Or, as Dave Feliz explained... They shrink. You know, like a kitchen sponge left on the, on the countertop. When it dries up, it, it might shrivel up and shrink. And so we experience subsidence of the 
of the soils there and the marsh plain dropped. In some areas it dropped as much as four to six feet and in other areas just a little bit, one to two feet. But that's still pretty significant because once those dikes failed and the tidal waters came back in, the land was too low to support healthy tidal marsh. And so that's where we are with a lot of our estuary. And it's difficult because this is a really rare habitat. We've lost 90% of it in California, and here in Elkhorn Slough, we've lost about 50%. And that's our tidal marsh. So when the harbor mouth was put in, historically, there would be a really uh, sinuous channel that would the water would slowly come in and up Elkhorn Slough. And then when the harbor was put in, there's a, there was a straight shot of water now. So the water just comes in, the tide comes in, and that creates... Because that water can come in and rush all the way up the slough, it increases the tidal prism in the slough. And it also increases the, the tidal scour, and that scoured out, out a lot of the soft mud. The tidal prism is the volume of water in an estuary, and the tidal scour is the erosion of the sediments off the bottom, resulting in deep basins that can't support marsh plant life. In typical estuaries, there's a stream or river depositing fresh water and sediment to the marshes. The Salinas River used to empty into the ocean just north of Moss Landing. And that all stopped at the beginning of the 20th century. And and now the Salinas River is all used up by the time it gets to the, to the ocean. So we have very little freshwater inflow into the Elkhorn Slough. But we do need to have a sediment source. So by losing a lot of the freshwater sources in the estuary, we've also lost our sediment source of sediment that comes in, mixes in the water, and settles out on the marsh and helps the marsh to continue to build with sea level rise. Uh, originally, we, we think we had about 2,000 acres. We have about 1,000 acres of tidal marsh now, but probably 50% of that is in pretty poor condition. And so this particular project, in order to, to um, bring the elevation back to the correct elevation that will support healthy tidal marsh, we're bringing sediment in. So we're, we were able to get some sediment from the Pajaro Bench Excavation Project a few years ago. That sediment was going to go to the landfill, but instead we brought it here to Elkhorn Slough, and we're using it and putting it back into this area to rebuild the tidal marsh. So bringing the elevation back up about two, two and a half feet, and in some areas, even three feet, because we want our tidal marsh to be high in the tidal frame because of sea level rise. And so that's really one of the most important things in doing a restoration project like this is we want to look towards the future and we want to make sure that we have a marsh that's high enough to, to be able to handle climate change and the changes that we're going to see over the next 50 or 100 years. Typically, salt marshes keep up with changes in sea level by accreting sediment that's that's kind of in suspension in the water and so so this stuff comes in with a high tide and will settle out on the marsh plain and uh, if there's no vegetation to hold it then it would just go away and and things would erode in order to counteract the erosion the elkhorn slough national estuarine research reserve and the elkhorn slough foundation must add enough sediment to support vegetation which in turn will help reduce erosion in the future Monique Fountain explains the complicated methods they're using. They get the tractors up and going, and um, and then they move dirt all day. They move dirt all day. Yes. <laughs> it's a project that is taking many, many months. They're moving over 200,000 cubic yards of dirt. That's a lot of dirt, and uh, it takes a lot of tractors. They're using big box scrapers and bulldozers, and it's, uh, yeah, it just it takes quite a long time. Not far away from that area some very healthy salt marsh and that salt marsh has uh, lots of tidal channels and pickleweed and that's really where the sea otters have concentrated so we can sort of see the model of what we want this restoration project to look like you know in another decade or so when, when the marsh has reestablished itself and that we hope that we'll have baby sea otters resting on on, uh, you know, in pickleweed beds and shorebirds coming in at low tide, feeding in the tidal channels. I think this is a really amazing project, and I feel really lucky to be working on it. It's been years and years in the making, and it's fantastic to finally see this happen and to be able to be part of restoring such critical habitat. Thanks for tuning in. For more information and updates on the Tidal Marsh Restoration Project, please head to www.elkhornslough.org. I'm Ventana Magalanes with Planet Watch.
You've been listening to Science Stories produced by the students at the Writing for the Broadcast Media class at Cabrillo College in Aptos, California. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman, the professor who taught these students how to do that. And if you'd like to learn how to produce features like this one or short commentaries, promos, news stories, and a lot more, get in touch with us or go online at cabrillo.edu and you'll find out more about how to sign up for the course and what other opportunities there are to get trained in radio production. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman for Planet Watch. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Okay, and speaking of the animal kingdom, uh, we had some sad news from this past week, uh, which is actually uh, related to the topics that will be talked about by our guest in studio today, Michelle Merrill, an anthropologist who's an expert on primates. But one of the great apes and perhaps the most famous and iconic and beloved of all the gorillas, uh, Coco, died. So as I say, no mo Coco. But Coco was amazing, uh, you know, really well known for her language skills. But even more so, if you look into it, her ability to, to love and to appreciate and to interact with other live beings... I mean, she learned, and you know, I just found out this morning, she, she learned to play the recorder. <laughs> and you know, scientists did not think primates, uh, you know, subhuman primates were able to control their breath that well. She, she once took her own picture in a mirror, which then became the cover photograph on a National Geographic magazine. She was born in 1971 in the San Francisco Zoo on July 4th and was named the Japanese name for fireworks baby, Hanabi Ko, <laughs> became Koko. And she just died this past week at age 46. And, uh, you know, reading about Koko and her amazing capacity for empathy makes me realize that, you know, uh, I'm not one to call people names, but I will say that the behaviors and attitudes being exhibited by some of our so-called leaders are less than subhuman. Coco is better than some of our so-called human leaders. I'll just leave it at that. But anyway, Rachel is now going to introduce our illustrious guest, one of the best of the humans we got around here. Indeed. I'm very, very pleased uh, to welcome Michelle Merrill. Uh, Dr. Merrill is currently an independent consultant and founder of Novasutras.org. Uh, she taught anthropology and sustainability courses at Cabrillo College uh, back in 2006, uh, all the way up to 2013. And she studied bonobos uh, at the Language Research Center at Georgia State and then in the rainforest of Zaire, now the Democratic Republic of Congo in the mid-90s, and uh, has also studied orangutans. So we want to talk about the, those experiences with you. Um, but I thought just... Uh, we had had a little conversation off mic about Jane Goodall, and I was going to ask you, Michelle, if perhaps watching her work with chimpanzees was an inspiration for you to go into this field. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I grew up watching National Geographic specials and Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom and um, uh seeing that kind of work, actually observing animals be themselves in a natural setting, doing what they do and trying to understand what they do and what that can tell us about them was uh, just thrilling to me. And I just, that I knew that was what I wanted to do. So when you first got in the field, I'm sure it was a lot different than studying them in the laboratory. What are some stories that um, happened in your early work? with these wonderful creatures? Like, how did you get to know them? How did they accept you enough to be able to study them? Uh -huh. That's always the trick, because they're not, they're wild creatures. They don't love you immediately as a fellow ancestor, do they? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I was fortunate enough, as I was going into the field in the mid-90s, uh, a lot of established research sites had already happened. So people like Jane Goodall, the pioneers, uh, had to take a lot of time to get their study subjects to be comfortable just having a human around. Some of that comes from the experience of humans often hunt primates. Um, everywhere that I worked, people had already set up a research site, and so the animals were already what we call habituated to having humans observe them. So. Um, they knew what a human with a clipboard and a pair of binoculars meant. 
and it mostly meant that they didn't have to worry about that human. Um, so when I was uh, when I was working in Zaire studying bonobos, there had been several years that that people hadn't been working there, um, and then some disturbances shortly before I arrived at that field site. So actually, we did have a very hard time just locating them. Um, so it, it would be, you know, we would go several days at a stretch where we just couldn't find them. Then we'd start to hear them, and then we could actually find where they're setting up their nests at night. And um, one of the things that we have in common with all the other great apes is that we, we like to sleep where it's comfortable. So all of the, all of the great apes will build a, sort of a, a sleeping platform for themselves at night. Gorillas do this on the ground. Uh, bonobos, chimpanzees, and orangutans do it up in the trees. So you can hear them doing that, and often they call while they're doing that because they want to kind of bring the group together at night. Um, so that was the way that we were able to find them. Sadly, I, I didn't get much chance to observe wild bonobos, which was what I was really, really excited about doing. Um, but just because of the difficulty of finding them and then because I had to leave the country in a bit of a hurry. Um, because? So... A combination of factors, but one of them was that a civil war was growing. Uh, Zaire is a, is a huge country. It's um, I know it's bigger than Texas. I can't I can't quite give you a. I think it's almost as big as France. Um, so this was in the far east of the country that the civil war was starting in 1996. Um, I was right in the center of the country, almost right on the equator. And then the capital was in the far west of the country. So we had started to hear rumors of it while we were in the capital on our way into the field site. And then we were hearing rumors that they were starting to move westwards. So um, that was part of our decision to, to get out. And then uh, we never, I, I was never able to go back. We knew that, you know, the Civil War, that particular Civil War lasted for several years. And then it's been kind of on and off ever since. I want to get into some of what we learned from primates that helps us understand our own behavior as well. Um, bonobos are supposed to be the most loving, sexual, <laughs> relaxed beings, you know, and a lot of people make fun of that, uh, like, oh, I'm kind of a bonobo type. But there's a lot more we've learned than about sexuality from bonobos, about social interactions. Yeah. What are some of the highlights of, of how we might be like them because they are really our closest relatives it turns out yeah absolutely. not very far down the evolutionary branch at all no no so we um we share a common ancestor with um so there was there was one ancestral population that became chimpanzees bonobos and us uh but it was all the same population we think about five and a half million years ago which is in evolutionary time yesterday. And how much of our DNA did they share with us? Um, you'll hear 99%, you know, th there are a lot of complications about how you, how you define that, but, but it's not unreasonable to say, yes, all of us are 99% uh, bonobo and bonobos are 99% human. Um, they are, their social structure is a little bit different from the common chimpanzee. So they're very closely related to the common chimpanzees. Those are the two. Uh, they are each other's closest relatives. Um, but one of the big differences that you see in common chimpanzees, males tend to form alliances with other males, and these tend to be uh, for aggression between groups, uh, even sort of coalitions for conflicts within their, uh, their larger population. In bonobos, even though the males are actually the ones who are more closely related, and that's true in chimpanzees as well, males stay on the group they were born in, so most of the males that they spend time with are um, cousins, if not brothers, father or son. That's true for bonobos, but it's not really the males that form close relationships. Um, sons will form close relationships with their mothers. And then these unrelated females will form really close relationships together. And we, th we know that there's a lot less uh, 
aggression by males against females in bonobos than there is in chimpanzees. And we think it's because of this difference in social structure and the importance of um, females as part of alliances in um, who dominates the social group. So sometimes people throw around, you know, comparisons between us when they're trying to justify sexism or, you know, biological determinism that, oh, the guys are just more dominant, so women should just put up with harassment. You know, there's crazy things people say that when they're very uneducated, but um, they can point and isolate and cherry pick certain behaviors and prove, you know, that we're just born this way, so we should just live with it. And what's your response to those kind of statements? So I, I think it's important to recognize that that potential is there and that there are some, um, you know, capacities in humans and human males for a level of aggression that may be different from females. But I think the important thing is to really recognize it, to understand the strategies for coping with it, to understand that there are strategies for coping with it. Um, and to take them very seriously. Just to uh, allow people to have questions, they are welcome to uh, dial in the following email if they'd like to ask you yeah, a question. I was question. trying to communicate via sign language in honor of Coco <laughs> to Rachel here. That, they didn't hey, that We didn't me. announce yet. No one ever taught me. You can get in touch with us by emailing radioplanetwatch at gmail.com both during this interview and, you know, anytime between shows and so on. We'll respond to you that way. We're so. talking with Dr. Michelle Merrill, a primatologist, among other things, an anthropologist. Right now, what's on my mind, is, is on many people's minds and hearts, is watching pictures of babies and children being ripped from their mother and father's arms. And the emotions that evokes in us um, is one of protection. And I would venture to guess um, that watching what's happening to migrant families that are trying to get asylum in this country, watching what's happening to their children being ripped from them is evoking a lot of intense emotion, especially in mothers. Um, and I was wondering what you think about this. Coco was able to foster a kitten, you know, to, to have a pet kitten. We're able to adopt children, not our own, um, and care for other people's children and hand ours over to other people to care for. Why are we... I mean, this seems like a completely ridiculous question. On one hand, what is it evolutionarily that is causing such anguish amongst us watching these children being ripped out of their mother's arms? Is that something that's part of our humanity? And how can people look at that and not feel that? Are they denying a piece of their humanity, their basic biological nature, in denying that that's an awful thing that's happening? Um well go for it michelle <laughs> let's not uh, mince let's, words here we're in not, a difficult so, time so and first we need of to all talk about this yes understand it. you're you're absolutely right and and yet the the roots of that are very deep and we can see that in the way that um an individual like coco is able to form relationships across species we can see that you know any person who's had a close relationship with a dog, and you know who you are, um, <laughs> you know what that means, right? The human capacity for that is part of our heritage as one of the great apes. We're all very socially embedded. And a piece of that is um, we help care for one another's offspring. Usually that's fairly limited in, in the other great apes, in the, in the gorillas, orangutans, uh, chimpanzees, and bonobos. It's certainly present. You see um, some of it, and in captivity, uh, females will readily foster, take care of an in infant that's handed to them that's not their own. Um, experienced mothers are often given the infants of inexperienced mothers if those inexperienced mothers show that they're not caring for their offspring very well to make sure that an experienced mother takes care of it and and that it has a better chance of survival in captivity um we see a little bit of evidence in the wild not not a lot but it's very clear that uh mothers are easily willing to let other 
and it's it's mostly between females. They'll let other females handle their offspring, um, encourage play with others, and that is something that undeniably not only humans, but going back to uh, things like Homo habilis or, or the Australopithecines, that had to have been happening. And particularly when you get to modern humans and probably our, our more recent fossil ancestors, um, our infants are born so early given our trajectory of development and they're so vulnerable and they require so much care. Um, it's almost impossible for to imagine a situation where a female could raise an infant without support from others. And so we needed to be good enough at that, evolutionarily speaking, to be able to trust one another to help co-rear offspring. Um, and so that is how we got to be humans in a, in a large sense. It's how we were able to evolve to be these big-brained, highly dependent, highly social animals that we are. So when we hear somebody on television say, well, don't worry about those children because those children aren't our children. They're not American, so don't worry about how they're treated by us. That doesn't ring true evolutionarily either because people don't necessarily subscribe to you know our parenting evolution stops at the border and we don't care about other children from other countries obviously we do or we wouldn't have adopted so many millions of children mm. from china and russia and elsewhere um, so the other question i had for you is what part of our evolutionary heritage is under in play when we see people using the harm of children as a threat to manipulate I mean, do do primates, other primates, attack the child of another tribe in order to terrorize that tribe? Are there infanticides that Ooh. happen that you've known about? Is this part of our heritage too, this bad side that we're seeing being played out by border guards? Absolutely it is. Um, now, there are a lot of different hypotheses about why we see infanticide in, in other primates, uh, but we do see it. Um, a lot of it has to do with it being a reproductive strategy for males that if they if they kill a young infant that female um, females are usually sterile or they're not ovulating they're not able to to uh, get pregnant rather while they're nursing their young so if you kill the infant that the hormones involved with nursing stop and then she starts um, cycling again and, and can get pregnant again. And so there's some evidence and a lot of people uh, think that it's a pretty strong hypothesis that males kill infants in order to have reproductive access to females. It mostly happens only in those situations where um, the social structure is very specific that uh, there will be one or just a handful of dominant males in a group and they uh, mate with all the females in the group. And then if there's a turnover, the males will kill infants. I want to clarify that my line of questioning is not <laughs> meant to give any justification or rationalization to anyone who wants to harm a child. No, This no. is not <laughs> what we're after and why we're discussing this, but to understand our evolution better as humans, to look at our nearest neighbors is something that we tend to do. We want to understand what part of ourselves is biological and evolutionary yeah. and what part of ourselves has choice. You know, we do have choice. Supposedly, we have a rational side that overrides our evolution. And I just came up with a word today or a so-called word for we're, we're humanimals, humanimals, and putting the greater perspective on seeing our potential, our pitfalls amongst our brethren and sistren out there. And when Donald Trump called uh, people undocumented in this country animals, um, 
that should not necessarily have been an insult because animals, you know, we are animals. Yes, we're all animals, however. Absolutely. So to, to use that as a pejorative yeah, is the great, to uh, deny ourselves. Science educator David Suzuki from Canada, beloved, uh, he, he told a story once. He came to a store and on the glass door there was a sign that said, no animals allowed. <laughs> and he said, well, I guess I can't come in here then. <laughs> yeah, no business for you, buddy. Yeah. Uh, Tommy has a question or yeah, comment. No, well, we have a question that came in that takes a big turn, but it says, what is a bonobo's capacity for humor and what function does this serve? <sighs> bonobos, in my experience, have a great sense of humor. Um, so I, uh, let me just give you, give you a little anecdote here. Uh, while I was working at the Language Research Center, so these are captive bonobos that have been essentially raised by humans, um, in association with other bonobos um, and they were learning a language and the way that they were doing this language work um, was actually using kind of early computer keyboards uh, so they had this custom-built keyboard with different symbols on them and and uh, and the bonobos could could tap those and it would actually say the word out loud in English for those of us who didn't yet speak Yerkese, which was what they called this, this language of symbols. So um, Kanzi and Panbanisha were using this and they, and they had a vocabulary of at least 200 words and, and they seemed to understand a lot more spoken language than that. Um, and, it, you know, this was carefully tested, pretty good evidence that they were getting it. But these keyboards were rather expensive and so we had to be really careful with them. Um, <laughs> So my first first day, it was, you know, I was on a weekend and they said, well, can, can you just be the main person there for this day? Okay. So, um... Hang they on, gave I just have to interject here. This somehow brings to mind the thing about a hundred chimpanzees typing, <laughs> typing on typewriters. You end up with Shakespeare's sonnet or something. Okay. Yeah. Monkey with a typewriter, I, not proven. I, they didn't write any sonnets while I was there. <laughs> but they had humor, right? You're kidding. But that. absolutely they did. Um, humor and just wicked cleverness. So, uh, so I have this, you know, it's having primates in prison is a bit like a jail. Yes. Um, so I have this giant ring of keys and several doors that I have to go through to go from the outside part of their enclosure to the inside part of their enclosure, but they have a straight pass through. So I'm in the inside part of the enclosure and we're, you know, making lunch for them or something. And um, Pan Benicia indicates that to me using the keyboard that she wants to go outside and play. And I said, well, okay, we can do that. Um, so pass me the the big keyboard, because she's not supposed to be taking that outside. Pass me the big keyboard, um, and we'll go outside. So she passes me the big keyboard, and I scoot it way away. And they have much longer arms uh, than than me, longer arms than most humans. So you know, way away from where I thought she could possibly reach it. Um, and then I turn around, and it takes me about a minute and a half to get get around and through all the doors by the time i get all the way around she has somehow not only gotten the key keyboard but she's taking apart the back and <laughs> she has this look on her face like oh i nailed you i totally got you she was so proud of it you could tell um so they're mischievous and they, they like to do uh, oh yeah tricks on and and you know we probably don't have time to get into the whole issue of locking up our neighbors to study them. Um, um, they're they're worth so much more intrinsically as as beings than they are as study subjects. But you do write about and talked about in your YouTube presentation, which is on our Facebook page. If you'd like to go watch this whole amazing slideshow that Michelle has put together, there's a piece about what's endangering our neighbors, basically uh, that's preventing them from possibly being around in 25 years and i wanted to get to that because as much as we want to learn from them we also just need to protect them as <laughs> our neighbors and relatives essentially so there's you said four things that are endangering them right now they're up there on the list one is poaching you have a photograph on there of these two baby chimpanzees looking out of a cage and this is what brought up for me the empathy feeling yeah. they look like babies they didn't look like chimpanzee babies their look on their eyes was, I'm scared, get me out of here. And so these are, the mother's killed and they're sold for pets? Is that what's going on? Yeah. So um, 
the most responsible research places have stopped taking animals from the wild a long time ago. It's all captive breeding now, um, which is, you know, it's sort of a, a backup plan because it's very hard to protect some of the habitats. That ha Habitat protection is the best thing to do to save primates. Absolutely. And don't eat palm oil. Apparently they're cutting down yeah. the forests so that we can have, what, some really bad oil in our chips yeah. and things yeah. like that so don't eat palm oil <laughs> it's one thing. and it's and it's almost impossible to stay to stay away from if you're eating any processed foods it's and in everything by the way but this brings up uh, another big place where michelle did work and also had to leave prematurely mm. was in southeast asia yeah. where they are just cutting down vast swaths of rainforest for palm oil and yeah. uh, you know the 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 bulldozers got closer and closer, and finally the whole research project you were involved with had to be called off. Yeah. And anyway. There's a YouTube video of an orangutan going up to a bulldozer and just hitting it with his hands. It's the most heartbreaking I, yeah, thing. Yeah, I, I saw that. It just... He's trying to fight uh, back, you know, in whatever um, way he can. Yeah, and, and, and I, don't, I don't know exactly, you know, what the entire background and, and where that came from and exactly where that was. Um... My guess is it was somewhere in Borneo where the, the clear-cutting is the worst. So how many orangutans are left in the wild? Not many. Um, on Sumatra, the estimates, I think, are somewhere around 5,000. And on Borneo, maybe um, somewhere between thirty and 50,000. And what's a normal number? I mean, what should it be? What, what was, was it? Yeah, good question. Uh, that's a great question. Um, many hundreds of thousands, at least. Mm. Um, they are they are disappearing very rapidly. Um, I've heard estimates of you know ten years left for yeah. Sumatran uh, orangutans. Yeah, and we just we just recently found a new species of orangutan in Sumatra, and there's only a few hundred of them. Um, and that's I I just I can't even describe how much my heart hurts when I think about that. Um, so. When you, when you see, to, to kind of get back to your question about poaching, you know, when you see uh, the, the black market trade for, for pets and primates, anytime you see a baby chimpanzee or an orangutan, it's almost certain that the mother had to be shot. That's the only way you're going to get a baby away from its mother. Um, all primate mothers are very, very protective of their very precious offspring. As are we. Yeah. Um, this is, again, you know, this is a deep part of our heritage as these, all of us animals that breed very slowly, have only a few offspring over the course of our lifetime, you know, maybe a dozen. Um, to lose one is such a huge loss. And that is just as true for any chimpanzee, orangutan, gorilla. And so to get a baby, which is all that someone who wants to buy a pet, they want the babies because once they get to adult size, they don't make very good pets. What do they do? Give them back to zoos or something? They like give that? them to zoos. They mm. try to release them back into the wild, which is a terrible idea because just like humans... They have to learn how to make a living. They yeah, don't. I'd like to see us all released back into. Yeah. The world. How would we do without <laughs> any? Food? How would you do if you got left in a rainforest <laughs> at, with no tools and, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Rachel was starting to ask a question about the the four threats, and mm -hmm. uh, on her uh, web talk uh, that we're posting, uh, Michelle has this quiz. What do you think is the biggest threat? Uh, let's see, what were they? There was the poaching, and cell then there, were, there was cell phones, there was paper products, and what was the other one? Something about plastics? Um, or pack, pa packaged pastries. Packaged pastries. Maybe we should save the answer for the end of the interview. <laughs> mm. See if they're paying well, attention. <laughs> Give them a yeah. prize. <laughs> Wanted to sort of head in that direction about these other... Yeah. I mean, the cell phones is a stuff called coltan, uh, an element being tantalum, 
Mm-hmm. Not sure what the chemical symbol is. TL. I meant to look that up. TL. Exactly. Maybe, Why is that? Uh, TN. Why is that a harm to yeah. them? I don't understand the connection. They're mining it in their re- in their habitat. Is that yeah. what's happening? Yeah. And um, a couple of pieces that go along with that. So first of all. Where the mine is, they're going to be clear cutting. There's a good likelihood that um, toxins will get in the water. Uh, but then also, you're going to get an encampment of people who are busy mining, so they don't have time to get food on their own, and they're hungry. And the easiest way to feed them is to send out a couple of hunters for bush meat. And so there's a huge amount of primate poaching for meat that goes on. Um, a lot of these are in uh, in Africa, actually part of what funded the civil war that I left uh, Zaire and then it became Congo. Um, part of what funded that was coltan mining. That's how people were paying for weapons. Oh. And by the way, tantalum, uh, the chemical symbol, Maya looked it up for us. It's T-A, right? Big T, little A. And it's, uh, it's something that... Uh, helps uh, the materials inside a cell phone, for instance, or a laptop, helps with the durability of it, as I recall. So what can we do about that? Are we supposed to stop buying cell phones or just stop buying so many different cell phones or recycle Um, them? What what can we do as consumers? So certainly reducing how many things you, you know, using it as long as you can, putting up with it until you absolutely can't stand it, that's a big step. Don't let people shame you for having a flip phone. No, <laughs> no. If it's still working for you, use it. Um, and then absolutely, once you're done with it, make sure it gets recycled properly because some of those some of those minerals can be extracted in the recycling process and that reduces the demand for mining. And this is know. heading more in the direction that, uh, you know, this whole show is supposed to be about... Well, there is gloom and doom, and we need to mm-hmm. highlight that, but we need to aim for the solutions, you yeah. know, the good yeah. parts, and uh, it's going to take longer than just this hour, and we're, we're <laughs> sort of starting to tiptoe around some little solutions here, yeah. but uh, the bigger question for me that we'll have to have you back sometime is, does the human race, do, us, do we humanimals have it in us? To get ourselves out of this huge mess that we've been making, uh, it's a it's an open question. I mean, we, we obviously can are capable of creating global messes. Are we capable of working together to get our asses out of them? And what part of our primate brain is preventing us? Right? Is it the mm. shiny object problem? That <laughs> ooh, a nice new cell phone. Oh, everybody loves little shiny things. <laughs> it's true. Um, I, I have to say, you know, absolutely, yes. Humans are capable of amazing things, and we can solve this. We have to choose to do it. And we have to be ready for, you know, what I think is going to be some major shifts in how we live our lives. It it may not be bad. It might end up being a lot of things become a lot more pleasant, but it is going to be different. And different is always scary. That, again, that's, that's natural. Being a little afraid of change keeps you safe. It keeps you from getting eaten by an unfamiliar predator. It's, you know, there's a reason that we have that reaction, but we know we're capable of getting over it. Our curiosity helps us get over it. And so leading with that and leading with our empathy, which which we have, again, this amazing capacity for empathy, not only within our species, but across species, um, and really... Embracing that and leaning into that, I think, is what's going to what's going to make the next couple centuries bearable. In this high tech world we're in, there's a lot of ripple effects of emotions that go through our system now that yeah. social media spreads them instantly. And since we've been a year now into the Trump administration, I've noticed, you know, um, that varying levels of empathy for an immediate cause and another problem, and people getting fatigued by mm-hmm. um, concerns that seem outside of their control. So that's one side of the equation. And the other is if you had someone modeling empathy at the very top level and spreading that kind of p- positive vision of what the human species could be, I think you'd also get people imitating that instead of just going around repeating that we're divided country all the time. You know, the more you say that, the more you make that true or feel that it's true and act as if it's true. Mm-hmm. So we have these mirror neurons. What what out of evolutionary 
biology that you've studied tells us why we have those? I mean, the part that we want to feel, but what, why else do we have such a strong feeling of, of mimicking monkey see, monkey do, <laughs> so to speak? Um, there's a lot of that, and that's what helps us learn. Um, so, so the mirror neurons, as I understand it, and I'm, I'm not a neurology expert, so I can't give you a lot of detail, but as I understand it, a big piece of what that is, is it kind of helps you create a mental model of what this other is doing so that you can replicate it if it seems like a good thing that's going to, you know, result in you getting tasty grapes to eat or something <laughs> lovely like that. Grapes, um, I like grapes. Yeah, but, but we've seen, you know, and it's, it's, not even, it's not even just primates, though it's very much true in primates, but rats have incredible empathy for one another. They respond with stress when there's another, another rat in stress. They respond... Um, Elephants have it in big... Oh yeah. When oh, they have yeah. a dead elephant, they all circle around it and touch it and have this mourning almost that happens. Yeah. And you know, this actually uh, uh, reminds me of uh, this video that we're going to post that, of Michelle practicing for a talk she gave. One of the main takeaways I got was from early on in that talk where she talks about the greater the diversity and variety of contacts you have with your fellow beings, humans. Um, in other words, mixing with lots of different types of folks, you get a greater toolbox of ways of dealing with our problems. And, and the big problem we have here is all these people in separate camps just hanging out with, you know, their own. And, uh, you know, we, we don't learn anything. We don't get any better. We can grow up the more uh, diversity and variety that we mix with. And uh, Michelle did some studies on that. Yeah, that was, that was sort of the, at the heart of my PhD research was looking at um, social relationships in orangutans and showing that the ones that had uh, spent more time in social contact, positive social contact, and had a greater diversity of uh, of others that they were willing to spend time in positive social contact with. Those were the ones that were the, the best tool users. They did the most, you know, they had the greatest sort of variety of problem-solving solutions because inventing something is pretty hard. But learning something from somebody else, that's a thing that we've evolved to specialize in, that all of the great apes have evolved to specialize in, lots of other organisms as well. But humans have taken it to this incredible extreme. And I think that's actually how we became human, was by getting good at being social, at having empathy for one another, at understanding what others are up to, and learning from that. Um, and again, the more the more time you spend doing that, and the more diversity, the more you can learn. And it's really all about learning. Well, that's a really great note to end um, our conversation on. I want to thank you, Dr. Michelle Merrill, for being here with us on Planet Watch. I'm so Rachel Ann Goodman, and I really appreciate your time. And I got just one cosmic fact to put that in a cosmic relief perspective. Uh, Michelle was the one who told me years ago, I was showing people stars, and I pointed out the Andromeda galaxy, which is the only thing you can see with the naked eye that is beyond our galaxy. It's two and a half million light years away. So the light that you see coming from that galaxy started out just about the time that human-like things were starting to roam around the Earth. <laughs> so that's, you know, two-plus million years. That's sort of a figure to hang your hat on for the beginnings of humanoid creatures. Well, we want to thank you for tuning in to Planet Watch. Once again, I'm Rachel Ann Goodman. And I'm Joe Jordan. Keep an eye on the sky. And don't forget, we're at planetwatchradio.com. Subscribe to our podcast. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we will see you next week. Bye-bye.